Uh, well, last week uh, we looked at Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 paints this incredible picture of Christianity's earliest days. It was just amazing. Everything was fresh, exciting. Acts chapter 2, we saw the Holy Spirit coming in power uh, upon the church during Pentecost. The gospel was being proclaimed with boldness. The church began to quickly grow. There was this deep love and appreciation for one another. So Acts 2 is just an incredible passage. This morning, we look at Acts chapter 3. Acts 3 continues the story of the spread of the gospel and the miraculous works of the Spirit through the ministry of the apostles. So let's read chapter 3 together. The Word of God says this, Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple, asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health and presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to the prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days, you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, 
saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we see your power at work in this passage. We know that it wasn't anything special about Peter and John. It was all because of your holy will. And Lord, we ask that you would give us spiritual eyes, spiritual ears to see and hear from you this morning. That we would marvel at your word. That it would change our lives. That we would leave differently. Lord, expose sin that we can repent. That our sins may as well be blotted out, Lord. Help us to trust you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So chapter 3, we begin to see like leadership developing. Peter and John, this chapter is basically broken up into two sections. Um, the, the first section focuses on a miracle. The second section focuses on those who like alliteration. So you've got miracle, message. Okay, so that's kind of the two sections here. We have miracle in verses 1 through 10, and then we hear the message in verses 11 through 26. So let's start first with looking at this miracle in verse 1. Verse 1, Peter and John, they were laboring alongside one another in ministry. What's fascinating about this, it seems like from the Bible, when you look at Peter and John, and just even from some historic traditions, people will point out that Peter and John are just very different from one another. And uh, John, was, he was known for his kindness, his love for others, his gentleness, where Peter is remembered more for his boldness, being assertive. But even though they had these personality differences, they had tremendous appreciation for one another and in their partnership in the gospel. And Peter and John are a reminder that God gives the church spiritual gifts, various personalities. You look around this room. Like we, we need each other. Uh, we, we have people who are really good at being a prophet and people who are you know, not good at being a prophet, meaning I speak the truth and you're going to love it, and you're like, I'm not really, I'm more like gentle. We need both of you. We, need gent- we don't need a room full of prophets, do we? Anybody say amen? We don't need a room full of people who are just like real... Just real gentle and afraid to tell the truth at times. We, 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 need, we need all different types of personalities. We see that being modeled here as the church begins. Uh, you, know, you see like these two men complement each other uh, to further God's purposes of reaching the nations. So Peter and John, they were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. Uh, the common Jewish practice was to start each day at 6 a.m. So the ninth hour is around 3 p.m., this was the time that the Jews would set aside to gather at the temple and pray. Verse 2, a lame man from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Uh, it's important um, to remember that Israel was this multifaceted group of people. To be Jewish or, or you know, we'd say today Israeli was more than just this religious body. 
They, 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 were, they were really unique. It was, it was a religious body, um, but then they also had physical borders. It was a land. It was a place. But then it was also a government, a government containing many laws. And so part of the government mixed with this religious body the giving of alms was there. It was something commanded in the Old Testament. It was a part of Israel's welfare system. The people of Israel took care of their own. The man did not receive a check from the Israeli uh, government. His livelihood was dependent upon the kindness and generosity of his fellow Jews. So someone would have to bring this man every day to some strategic point so that the people would have mercy upon him. This was his livelihood. So we see here that they would bring him to this gate, this beautiful gate. This was a place where people were heading in to worship God, which made this a very strategic spot. Think about it. Before they would come into the presence of God, where they would be praying, petitioning God for help, they would first have to walk past this man. So think about that. There's just the psychology. Um, there's so many reasons to give money. Some give because it's Gives them great joy. They just love it. Um, they enjoy giving. They're, they're what the Bible calls cheerful givers. Then there's some that uh, they give simply because they think if they give, then they will receive. Some give because the Torah commanded them to, and so they just want to be obedient. Then some people give just so maybe the people walking with them would, you know, would think highly of them. If they didn't give, they didn't want to be judged. Uh, and you can see all of these sometimes in a church service. You ever been to a church service where they pass a plate? If you're a guest this morning, notice so far we haven't passed a plate. It's just not something we do. We have a box just out here in the foyer where you can just give at your discretion. Um, but if you've ever been to a church where you pass a plate, you'll, you'll kind of see these. Maybe you've experienced these. I, I have. As, I have. Um, you'll see that some people will give because they, it brings them great joy. They, they just can't wait to give. Others put money in the offering plate because they hope that God will answer the prayers. You know, if I drop this 20 in, then maybe God will do something for me. Scratch your back, you scratch my back. Some people um, put money in just because they feel like they have to. Like, well, it's just required, just something that Christians do. Then others, they, they give um, because you've had the plate coming. You're like, oh, man, let me just, what can I pull out? Because you, you're more concerned about what the people on your left and right are going to think of you. So you give just because you don't want them to judge you. So this was a very strategic spot for this lame man to be in. You think he's there, and you think of, you know, if I could have done this. I could have set somebody up out back, had them dress up like they're homeless, a little sign out there. As you come in, I'm sure your heart, you've been like, man, what do I do? I'm going to go into church, right? Should, I, I, should, I should give to this person. I'd feel bad if I walked right past them and I'm going into church. Look at how much I love the Lord and I'm not being very generous. So you can see how this would be a very good place to be in. The man in this passage, he, he needed some money. But from the world's perspective, this man is not just broke. He's broken. He's physically crippled, he's humiliated, he's hopeless. And we learn from chapter 4 that this man is more than 40 years old. So this lifestyle of coming daily to the temple, begging for alms, was nothing new. 
Peter and John probably had passed him many other times before. In the first century, a disability was in many ways considered a death sentence or at least a lifetime of poverty. A disabled person was not only an economic liability to the family, but also an enormous economic drain on the society. Sadly, if in many cultures, if a child has a, de- a disability, then this would be reason uh, for abortion, for infanticide. But much like in our world today, there, there are countries where a disability would be reason enough to abort a baby. But in the Jewish world, killing a disabled infant was strictly forbidden. You could not do this. But it still remained a very difficult situation for the family to care for. Uh, most of the time, all that could be done for a disabled person was to take them to a public place, like we see here, where they could receive alms. Not only was this a challenge financially for the family, but as you could imagine, those with disabilities were often shunned as spiritually or morally inferior. Uh, you can see this type of mindset in John chapter 9. Remember when we were going through the book of John? Uh, the last several months in John 9, the, this is where the disciples encountered the man who was uh, born blind. When they saw the man, they asked Jesus, Jesus, who, who sinned that this man, uh, or they, you know, who sinned this, this, this man or his parents that he would be born blind? And then Jesus challenges them. He challenges their thinking. He says, he, he told them that neither, it was neither the, the sin of the man nor his parents that caused this blindness. Rather, Jesus said that the man was born blind so that the works of God might be displayed in him. And that's exactly what Trevor played, uh, prayed for earlier. So we see this man born, we don't know if he's born lame, but he's been lame for at least 40 years. So let's pick up verse 3. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. So as this broken man asked Peter and John for alms, they directed their gaze at him and said, look at us. Peter essentially says, look, buddy, I've got some good news, some bad news. Bad news is I have no silver and gold. I'm sure at this moment, some confusion was probably setting in for that man. Then Peter says, I have some really good news also. What I do have, I give to you. I'm sure man still was confused a bit, thinking, what could you give me that I could possibly need other than silver and gold? That's what, that's, that is what I need. You know, could Peter give him um, a book on you know, being, being better at fundraising? Uh, maybe a Dave Ramsey book on budgeting. I mean, what, what, what could Peter give this man? Peter says, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. He took him by the right hand and raised him up, 
and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. Leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. I want you to see what God's doing here. There's something new. Peter would have never touched this man prior to Christ. Um, touching someone who was lame meant that you would become unclean. So Peter could never go into the temple. So here, Peter touches this man. I love this picture. He didn't have to touch him, but he did. Took him by his right hand, raised him up, and they all walked into the temple. I mean, think about it. Possibly four decades of never being able to walk, and now my man is leaping. He's leaping. He's praising God. And people are shocked. They're in awe. So let's process this miracle for a moment. What does this teach us about the character of God? I think there's several things here. First, we see in this passage that we often expect too little of God. This beggar thought the best he could get was some money for his next meal. But Christ wanted to give him something far more than he could ever imagine. I think our prayers can often be so very small. I'm not saying that God does not care about the minutia of your life. He does. Absolutely, he does. And he wants you to pray for those things. But he also wants us to see him as this huge, mighty, powerful God who can give us the things uh, that, that, that we could use to further his kingdom, things that we could never imagine that he could do in our lives to further his kingdom. And I honestly think that we are far too often like this lame beggar, where we, we ask for alms rather than seeking healing. We tend to fail to see that our deepest needs are not physical but spiritual. We often ask the Lord to change our circumstances, to remove our suffering, rather than asking him to change us so that we can find joy in any circumstance. Second, this passage shows us that people with disabilities are extremely important to the Lord. Did you notice that? This man was not broken. I love what Crystal said last week about our special needs ministry, that this man was intricately woven in his mother's womb. He was not a mistake. The Lord did not heal this man in order to give him value. He healed this man because of Psalm 115, verse 3. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Disciples had walked with Jesus for three years, and now Christ's heart for the lame has now rubbed off onto them. You know, I wonder if they just walked past this man for years, giving him some silver and gold every now and then. But now they knew, like, man, like, what would Christ do in this moment? And so they... they you know, they notice him, which I think is fascinating. If you remember from last chapter, Peter preaches, 3,000 people repent and become Christians. Put yourself in Peter's situation for a moment. You, you preach, thousands of people come to know Christ. Don't you think like you might start to get a little bit puffed up? My feeling is, is, if this were to happen today, then the preacher would immediately be celebrated. We make much of him. Then this celebrity pastor would never notice the lame man. 
We have far too many quote-unquote pastors who have a love for the stage but don't have a love for the sheep. Peter and John made themselves available even to those that others did not see. We need to be that kind of church. We need to notice the quote-unquote invisible people, people that the world just looks right over, just never sees. Shame on us if that's us. We need to notice everybody. Every person is created with value, with dignity, with worth. They need to experience the love of God. I think when we read a passage like this, it's probably really normal to look at this and then wonder if God could do something like this today. Maybe some of you already been thinking that. Like, could God do this today? Well, as you can probably imagine, Christians are divided on whether miraculous gifts continue to happen within the church today. Like, did that cease with the apostles? Like, did they have some kind of power and authority that when they died, the church, it just didn't get carried on? I think we should never shy away from asking God to do whatever it takes to awaken sinners to their need of salvation. We cannot demand or dictate how God should act in the world, but we can always ask him to use his power to glorify himself, save the lost. So should we still pray for the sick to be healed? I think the book of James encourages us to. James 5 says this, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Don't miss that phrase. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. So as we pray for healing, we need to remember that God always answers. God always answers, either presently or at the resurrection. But God always invites us to pray. He hears our prayers and will ultimately heal his people. In the new heaven, in the new earth, there will be no lame legs. This is what the prophet Isaiah prophesied about. Isaiah 35, verse 5 and 6 says, Then, which means not now, you know, it's something in the future, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Jesus gave us a glimpse of this future kingdom during his earthly ministry. But ultimately, he even pointed us to this future kingdom where there will be no blind, no deaf, no lame, and no mute. Notice in chapter 3 how the lame man is healed, and the very first place that he visits is where? The temple. He goes to worship God. As I mentioned earlier, he wasn't allowed to go into the temple. Leviticus prohibited someone with a disability from entering to the temple He would have been considered unclean. So this may very well be the first time he's ever been inside the temple. Imagine years. You know, you get days and months and years built up. You can see how this man might have become bitter towards God as he's watching other people, 
um, maybe receiving more alms. Maybe they're being healed and he's not. But yet, it doesn't seem like, you know, he's angry at God. The very first thing he does, he goes and worships. I, I, lo- I love this. Verses um, 8 and 9 shows how he goes about. He's praising God in the temple. And then God uses his physical healing as this platform for, for Peter to now go and give this message about what, the, what man's need is for truly being healed. Uh, the rest of Acts 3 shows how this miracle created an opportunity for the preaching of the gospel. We see in verse 11 that the setting takes place at Solomon's portico, which is this massive porch that had these giant columns that surrounded the temple. The portico overlooked the city, and it was a place for people to gather and fellowship. Uh, if you remember, and we're going through John's gospel, this is uh, John 10. This is where Jesus was almost stoned to death. Uh, in verse 12, Peter begins to preach to the Jews. And when he saw it, when, and when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? You see what Peter's already doing here? He's already taking the focus and the credit off him and John, and he's pointing people to Jesus. Verse 13, Peter attempts to show these Jews how Jesus is the promised Messiah. They just, they've missed. Verse 13, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over in the night in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health and presence of you all. So Peter, he, he's connecting Jesus to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, saying that you know, they prophesied about this man, God's servant. Here's this upside-down kingdom we talked about last week. Jesus, who's fully God, became a servant. You know, our culture is all about climbing the professional or societal ladder, but Jesus shows us a much better way to live to serve others, to pour out your life for others, not you. It's not about you. Peter says that these Jews denied Jesus. They cut him off from the people, delivered him to Pilate. Peter calls Jesus the holy and righteous one. Now think about that phrase. If these were the same people who denied and delivered Jesus over to Pilate, and now Peter is calling Jesus the holy and righteous one, a phrase deliberately giving divinity to Jesus, then this would have been considered heresy. And Peter is about to discover what Jesus meant when he said in John's gospel, if they hated me, then they're going to hate you. Peter accuses them for killing the author of life and granting life to the murderer. Do you see the irony here? The Jews demanded that Pilate kill the author of life while at the same time demanding that he save the life of someone who takes life from others. 
Peter then transitions in verse 17 from Christ, from who Christ is to who they are. He gets really personal. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. I mean, this was, this was Peter just at this point, maybe a few weeks ago, when a little servant girl said, no, don't you know Jesus? He said, oh, I don't know that man. Denied him three times. Here, he is boldly proclaiming truth about Jesus. Verse 18, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his, pro of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, the Lord God will raise him up, will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him and whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days, you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Verse 19 is the heart of Peter's sermon. He encourages these faithful, righteous Jews to repent and turn back to God. Remember Peter's audience, Peter speaking to devout Jews. I mean, where are they? They're at the temple. Why? Because they're there to worship God. And Peter says, you guys need to repent. You're wicked. These people saw themselves as faithful followers of Yahweh. The idea that they would have to return to God would have been so insulting. From the Jews' perspective, they have never left God. They're at the temple. This is where God dwelt. They were near to him. These Jews already thought they were righteous. They were descendants of Abraham. They observed the Torah. You can see how this works in the church. Some of you may have grown up in the church. You've always been around the church. You have a Bible, and you think because you go to church and you have a Bible, then therefore you are righteous. But Peter calls them to repentance, to turn back, and their sins will be blotted out. See, the truth is your greatest problem is not something or someone out there. Your greatest problem is something in here. You are a sinner I am a sinner. We often love ourselves way too much. And because of our own sin, God's wrath is justly waiting to be poured out upon us. But, I love that the gospel doesn't stop there, but when we turn to Christ, our sins are blotted out 
and we no longer bear uh, its penalty. It's like God has this huge dry erase board, not quite as big as the one in Dustin's office, but really close. And he just writes out all the sins on that dry erase board. There could even be sins on that dry erase board that you don't even know you have. Like, I don't remember that. God's like, oh, yeah, that was, that was in you. But when we repent, he just wipes them all away. You are spotless. Jesus has wiped out all of our wrongs. We have no guilt. We are under no condemnation. Isn't that incredible news? But some of you still live. Some of you still live with that guilt. But that sin has been forgiven if you've confessed. If you confess Christ, trusted in him, he, he's wiped away them all. These verses, Peter warns that those who refuse to repent will be destroyed from the people. Peter does something here that helps us to know that um, it, it, it's kind of be beautiful. It really, it's really changed how I look at the Old Testament. Peter does something here that really impacts how we view the Old Testament. Peter, when he looks at Moses and the Exodus, do you notice that he sees Christ there now? I don't think you would have seen that before. When the people of Israel were taken out of bondage to Egypt, the rescue anticipated our deliverance our deliverance from sin. He, he, was, he was showing us this picture. Jesus is the figure whom Moses is talking about. Moses physically delivered the Israelites from bondage. But Christ spiritually delivers all who believe in him. Verse 26 is this tremendous picture of the gospel. Even these people who called for the blood of Christ... And for the murderer of Barabbas to be set free. I mean, think about the guilt you'd have if that was you. Even now, like, you believe what Peter's saying. You have this moment of like, man, I know that I messed up, but I'm the one who killed Christ. I'm literally the one who freed Barabbas and put Jesus on the cross. And now Peter's offering them forgiveness. It's amazing. I don't know what you've done in your life, but I'm guessing this is way worse. To literally kill Jesus, to set a murderer free, this is the beauty of the gospel. And maybe you identify somehow this morning with this. Maybe you're someone who, you've been far from God. Maybe you feel like God could never forgive you of your sins. But here, God is offering forgiveness to the people who had him killed. Forgiveness is for you this morning if you humble yourself. This chapter shows us that there are only two possible responses to the gospel. Repent and return to God or reject it and be destroyed by his wrath. That's it. There's no middle ground here. Peter preached the truth of the gospel and called his hearers to respond 
I think it's very fitting for me to finish up, to close this morning in the same manner. I think if Peter was standing here this morning, he'd look at you and he'd say, repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. That times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. See, the path towards your soul being refreshed, revitalized, invigorated isn't from some vacation or some more materials or this job or this relationship. Your time of refreshing begins with your repentance. Will you humble your soul today and repent of your sin? As the band comes back up to lead us, I just want us to take a few moments and just confess any sin that the Lord is bringing to your mind. I mean, we're at a very unique point in the history of the church. Everything's new, it's fresh, it's, Acts 3 is incredible. We're going to see a few more chapters where things go great. But then sin begins to creep into the church. And you see some of the wheels start to, start to you know, come undone. Things start to fall apart. It's dangerous when there's sin in the camp. So this morning, I just want us to just, just be introspective for a moment. Don't think about all the other sinners in the room, okay? It's not time for you to point, about, point out every other person's sin in the room. It's just look at your own heart this morning. What do you need to confess of? What do you need to make right with the Lord? Take this time and do so. Let's pray. God, as we just look into our hearts, examine ourselves, Lord, may you just hold the mirror up. May you reveal things, maybe hidden, maybe there's closets in our heart that we've never opened up, that this morning it's time to open the door, to expose sin, maybe pride, gossip, jealousy, envy, malice bitterness, unforgiveness. Or may you just bring things to our mind that we can just confess that we want to be uh, people who repent, who turn to you. So Lord, show us our hearts. Help us to trust that once we expose all these things, once we confess them, that you're not going to leave us that you're there with us. Lord, humble us. Help us to be men and women of prayer that would trust you no matter what. We pray all this in Christ's name.